back when some of my kids were in kindergarten, uh, we had a note come home that says, hey, please bring goodies on certain days, that'd be great, uh, but only store-bought stuff, not uh, not home-baked goods. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Uh, nothing healthy, I guess, right? Um, but then we talked to the teacher and they said, they said, well, actually, what we would like to do is come to your house first and just see your kitchen, basically. Do an inspection, right? Just but kind of see how you live before we're going to say, yeah, go for it. Um, if you want to make food in that kitchen, you know, that's totally fine. You can bring home-baked goods now. Um, you know, and, and they, you know, I guess that's that's important. That's that's fine. Uh, but it was one of those curious moments. I know one of our brothers in our church works in extermination, right? And he can show you pictures of the restaurant kitchens you don't want to eat from. Yeah, like, oh, no thanks, I'm not going there. Or maybe we could say a bit about potlucks and, uh, and you picky eaters. You know who you are. You're looking at that mystery meat casserole with the vegetable mash medley and you're wondering i don't know if i really want to partake right uh, for one of the picky eaters in my home um, ella my dear girl uh, we had to develop a phrase for her so she didn't just turn up her nose and say gross i don't want that something that sounded a bit more polite although it doesn't really um these are not my favorite you know, uh, no thank you helping, that sort of thing. Well, I'd like to expand the picky eater title to our preferences about whom we eat with as well. So I'm picky about who I eat with as well as what I eat. These people are not my favorites. <laughs> uh, not my favorite people to hang out with. I, maybe it's because I don't want to be seen with them. You know, they're not my style. They're going to mess it up. Um, or I don't like the way they eat, or I just like to eat alone, or I like very few people at all, right? Well, Peter, one of the core Jesus followers, had hung out with Jewish people all his life because that was the only way you knew as a Jewish person you could stay clean and pure. Well, that was very important according to the the cultural rules set up in the Bible, you know, the Hebrew Bible, the Torah. But then Jesus started to show his disciples that he was changing the rules. And it started out not simply, but, but within the, the Jewish people themselves. Um, everybody knew that you, you, you couldn't touch an unclean thing. If you did touch an unclean thing, you would become unclean yourself. And then you'd have to go through rituals. So a good Jew wouldn't touch it, or if she did, they would... She would go through purification rituals to present herself right before God. You don't touch dead things or unclean things because your God is pure and whole and full of life. And so you don't bring things of death into the presence of God. But then Jesus would touch people with unclean spirits, they're called. Uh, sick people. Dead people. And what would come of that? Did Jesus become impure and unclean? No, actually what happened was freedom and healing and life flowing out of him. So purity and wholeness, or holiness as we call it too, would pour out of Jesus because he was the source of it all. Hmm. So the question is coming up, would that, would that be the way it, it 
worked with the followers who were filled with the Spirit, who would go out. Yeah, the, the, the disciples now called the apostles, the sent ones, were casting out demons, healing people. We've been reading stories, uh, even raising the dead. And so the power of God is on display through them to the people of Israel, just like Jesus did. But it wasn't so easy to see how that transition from bringing the Jewish people back to true life, you know, seeing the, the, the people of Israel like a valley of dry bones being put back together and seeing a, a new Israel come out of this. That, that was one thing, but the transition from that to now pouring out life and love to the rest of the world, how is, how is that going to happen? These are idol-worshipping, pig-eating pagans, right? They don't, they're not keep kosher, and they're, they're doing all sorts of other practices that we wouldn't trust. And there was a lot of distrust back in the time of, of the apostles of Jesus. A lot of distrust and suspicion going both ways. Lots of prejudice. The Jews would tell stories of awful things that were going on in the homes of the Gentiles. And some of those may, may have been based on reality. But, you know, the, the Gentiles become them and other, and then the Jews become them and other, and so there's just not a lot of trust. Tom Wright, a historian, notes that one of the reasons the Jews gave for not going into Gentile houses and eating with them is that their houses were polluted. And this is pretty sad, but because the Gentiles forced their women folk to have abortions and then put the dead fetuses down the drains or under the floorboards. I mean, their houses symbolize death, right? Wright goes on to say, in the same sort of way, some Gentiles were taught that Jews were stuck up, unsociable people because they wouldn't eat pork. Pork was the cheapest meat of the day. And because they insisted having a day off of, of work each week. And because they wouldn't join in with the normal social activities, like parties, which went in on around the pagan temples, and, and the great games that celebrated the gods or sometimes the emperors, right? Let's go to the games. Let's go to the Colosseums. Let's go see the gladiators. No, we're not, we're not going to do that. Hmm. And some Gentiles assume that because Jews didn't worship the idols that they worshipped in the temples where they worshipped, that they were probably the ones robbing the temples of the goods that, you know, were left behind for the gods. Maybe the Jews were temple robbers. There, there were lots of suspicion um, going on. When they, and these were the extreme ends of the spectrum with lots of people that were willing to live alongside one another and live well. Um, but we're going to come back to this idea of prejudice later because you, you could probably see there's an application for us relational picky eaters as well, right? So we got Peter a good, faithful, covenant-keeping, eighth-day circumcising, festival-keeping, kosher-eating, spirit-filled, Yahweh-loving, Jesus-follower, and he's being redirected toward love of neighbor in that very expansive sense uh, to include these others, the Gentiles, the way Jesus did. And so in the same story, we'll see that they become family. Whoa, not just other, but family. And we can applaud Peter for holding on to traditions that marked out his people as the preserved remnant, the people of God, for the purposes of God to bless all nations. We can applaud that, but there's, there's something else going on. 
the Jewish people were supposed to remain pure and separate for the purpose of displaying Yahweh to the rest of the world as, as the light of the world. And now Cornelius has responded to that light and wants in. Okay, so as we go to the passage today, Acts 10, 17 through 23, I just want to remind you of a uh, maybe a pro tip. When the story goes into slow motion like this, we should be on alert that something big is happening in, in Luke's history. We call it the book of Acts, but it's really the, the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles, right? So something big is going on. And let's read Acts 10, starting at verse 17. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry about Simon's house, stood at the gate and they called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. But while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Wow. Go, go, go. Uh, I, I love what Willie James Jennings says. The Spirit of God is on both sides of that gate, right? Outside the door with the seekers and inside the door with the perplexed Peter. Think about that. The Spirit of God is out there. He's in here and he's seeking to make that connection. Well, what a way to live, right? So as Peter went down, the verses go on. He goes down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What's the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So Peter invited them in to be his guests. <laughs> So at this point, in, in the Tanner's home, Peter's in charge of the hospitality in some sense, right? He knows what's in the casserole. <laughs> it would be different when he went to their house, but that's the story for next week. So what is this picture of hospitality and, and guests? We know that, that it was not really allowed. Uh, there's a scene in the sham trial of Jesus in John 18, 28, where the Jewish leaders avoid entering a Roman residence, is the palace of the governor, because they don't want to be made ceremonial, ceremonially unclean because it's the time of the Passover, right? It says uh, they, they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. And so Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusations do you bring against this man? So it's a pretty common custom. We're not going to go into those other homes or we're going to have to go through all sorts of rituals. But the prophets did speak of the day when the nations would respond to the light and come to Jerusalem to seek Yahweh. All the way back in Isaiah chapter 2, 1 through 5, let me read that to you. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, 
that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Jerusalem is not a high mountain, but it's going to be lifted up, it says. And this is figurative language, meaning of all the places, of all the gods, you know, Mount Olympus, or this place or that place, Mount Zaphon, there's all these other things that locally, it's going to be the biggest mountain. It's going to be lifted up and all will stream to it, up the mountain. So just in case you were wondering if this issue of picky eaters was resolved in this chapter, you know, all the nations are coming, so, well, that's wonderful. No, it's not. In fact, it's one of the, the main themes of the New Testament letters. The, the entire book of Romans, considered a, a beautiful treatise on theology, was actually written for a singular point. If you look to the end, you skip to like, well, then what are we supposed to do about this? The big reveal at the end of the book of Romans is all about eat meals together. Don't judge one another. Extend hospitality to one another. You're one family now, and you need to dwell in unity. In fact, your dwelling in unity is going to show the empire what true kingdom living is like. <laughs> Pretty awesome. So verses 23, back in Acts chapter 10, verse 23 through 29, uh, Peter on the next day rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and he had called together his relatives and close friends and when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up and said, stand up. I too am a man. This is not okay. Think about that. The, you know, the Romans considered themselves the rulers of the world. You, you don't have to go far in Roman histories or poetry to remember that, that Romans took pride that they had conquered the world, that Rome was the greatest of all cities and a light of the world, a citadel for all nations, that they were chosen by the gods to achieve these aims. And here a centurion awkwardly bows to a backwater fisherman turned apostle of Jesus. The irony is amazing. Peter's like, no, 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 that's not okay. That's not okay. But just the, the stumbling awkwardness of Cornelius is beautiful, isn't it? So it goes on. As he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, okay, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. So I asked then why you sent for me. His entrance into the household isn't exactly what we would consider heartwarming, would we? <laughs> he sounds kind of like a picky eater at a potluck. Oh, that's not my favorite. But I guess, you know, hey, guys, you know, I'm, I'm not supposed to be here with people like you, unclean, dirty people. But God told me to make an exception. So this doesn't go on my record. It goes on his. Very interesting. 
So Cornelius says, um, verse 30 through 33, four, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once and you've been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you've command, been commanded by the Lord. Right. So, we're, like I say, we're not going to hear all that, that Peter has to say, but, but we see this big shift opening up. Peter's world is opening up wider and wider so that Cornelius and his family could enter into the world of, of Israel. The true Israel, which now includes the nations, completed in Messiah Jesus. So as, as your pastor, I've got some pesky pastor questions for you. Oh, well, first one is this. Is your world wide open for others to enter in? Is your world wide open for other people to enter in? If not, ask the Spirit to do that work. I know He will. You know, see, in, in Jesus, history has shifted. The law, the teaching, the Torah has been filled up to the full and now it's pouring over by the power of the Spirit into other nations, other neighborhoods, right? God is giving a new heart and a new power to create a new people, the people of God. The ancient promises are now coming true as people gather around to hear the news about what God has done in and through the person of Jesus as royal Messiah, the King. So as Peter, you're thinking, what, would he naturally assume, okay, well, maybe this is true. The door, this makes sense. The door is wide open for these Gentiles to come in and become proper Jews, right? They've, they've come to the mountain of God that Isaiah talked about to give up, right, their ethnic past and embrace Judaism in its totality. That makes sense, right? That means circumcision, proper festivals, the Sabbath, the food laws, right? I guess, I mean, I guess like it's always been for the Jewish people, the door is open for everyone to become Jews. And maybe that's what Jesus is saying, that, that they become Jews, adopt that culture, and then follow Jesus. I wonder if that's what's going through his mind. Certainly, they have to give up idol worship. That makes total sense, because the one true God does not brook idolatry. He doesn't put up with other gods being worshipped. But something clearly has shifted. And I think... It must have felt like an earthquake for Peter. You know, he, he's growing to understand. And so as you think about your world widening and opening up, can you band even with other believers who name the name of Jesus as Lord? Can you strive for unity there? What's on your list? Well, they don't think about this. They don't think about this issue this way. They don't think about this political thing this way. They don't think about this theologically this way. And so we just we just don't fit. Well, what about Jesus as Lord? Can we connect with believers like that? Can we? If we can't do that, how can we even love our neighbors who are different to us? So. Here's one consistent way to go with my pesky question, to step into this mindset and pathway of Jesus. I, I believe that God has in our congregation someone who needs to step up, or a few people, or a group that needs to step up into this role that we have. On the first Tuesday of the month, each month, 
our church serves a community meal for everyone in Issaquah in need of food or connection. Sometimes that's homeless people, sometimes that's seniors, sometimes it's, it's other people that, that just want to make, make some connections. Uh, reach out to me. I would like to talk to you about building a ministry team that can, can have this mind-opening, life-opening um, pathway towards serving people who are other. Yeah. Okay, here's another pesky pastor question. Is your vision of Jesus, of the worship of Jesus, monocultural? Well, yeah, I mean, if they want to come worship Jesus, they got to just come and do it, but they got to do it just like us. See, in this situation we're looking at, being Jewish doesn't necessarily become less important for the Jews, but the Jewish culture is not a necessary pathway to salvation. And even now, you, you see a pretty wide spectrum. You, you've maybe felt this. Uh, have you noticed on one side that non-Jews, the Gentiles, have said, well, thanks, uh, Jewish people, we'll take Jesus from here, and we kind of divorce Jesus from his cultural heritage. That's one side of the spectrum. On the other side, we have non-Jews, Gentiles, trying to keep the rules of Jews to fully embrace the culture. I have friends like that as well, where they want to go the whole other way, and it's, it's really interesting. And I want you to think about this. this here's a principle that you could probably settle in on. Christianity isn't the expression of one culture, but the sharing in the, the culture-transforming story. Okay, it's not the expression of one culture, but the sharing in the one culture-transforming story. So wherever you go with the message of Jesus, it's going to spring up with a new beauty. Okay, so here's another pesky pastor question. Is it your idea that worship happens only in one location? Sunday morning at the church building. What would worshiping Jesus look like in this culture and that culture? This neighborhood and that neighborhood? This workplace and that workplace? Surely following Jesus doesn't look like just one thing anymore. It has just a singular focus, Jesus as Lord, but it doesn't look the same everywhere we go. And so I think for us as a church, an ongoing project for each of us will be to consider how we can embrace this transformational story in, in the places where we live, work, learn, and play. Another question, is your posture, like those of Cornelius' household, toward ready obedience, waiting on God's word for direction. Just say it. Just say it. Or are you a picky eater as it relates to obeying the Spirit? What do you want me to do today, Spirit? Oh, no, 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 not that. No, no, not that. What else? What else? <laughs> Let's try something different. That's not my favorite. Are we gathered like Cornelius' staff, you know, his other soldiers, servants, relatives, close family, friends, are we gathered around to hear the implications of the new thing that has happened? Like, what is this new story that God wants to tell me? What, what are the implications of, of the, the change that's, that's brought about by the victory of God um, as, as God has become king in the person of Jesus? Are we gathered around like that? Are you, are you excitedly anticipating what God will do as he brings his kingdom? Another question, do you believe that the Spirit works like this today to draw people in? 
as I close, I, I just want to finish with a story that I'll read from Nick Ripkin uh, in, the, in the book Insanity of God. I'm just going to read from chapter 30. And it'll be a little different, but I, I want to close with this. Nick um, has been interviewing persecuted believers all over the world to try to get a sense of how to help a church flourish in Somaliland, Somalia, in the Horn of Africa, where his ministry had begun. He says, with the counsel of our persecution task force team, and based on research, Ruth, his wife, and I developed a target list of 45 countries where we thought we would find significant oppression of believers. By the time we'd finished putting together an itinerary for my first two trips that summer and early fall of 1998, we had sketched out what seemed like a logical plan for covering the rest of the world. After trips to Russia, Eastern Europe, and China, the plan was to travel to Southeast Asia, then to the Indian subcontinent and its neighboring countries, and then to Central Asia, and finally to return to where it all started for us in the places dominated by Islam, the Persian Gulf, the Middle East, the Horn, and across Northern Africa. When conditions were right and contacts fell into place for me to schedule one last stop on my trip home from China, I took the opportunity to spend a few days in a very large, very strict Islamic nation. Our original plan would bring us to Muslim countries the following year, but this opportunity presented itself, and we saw that as an open door. During my time there, a 43-year-old Muslim background believer somehow heard through the oral grapevine that a Westerner had come to his country wanting to discover how Muslims were finding Jesus and what challenges these converts were experiencing as they lived out their faith in hostile environments. I still have no idea how he learned that I was coming or where I would be. It turns out that Pramana, this man, traveled 29 hours to find me. He had lived his entire life in a remote, tropical, and rural region of his third world country. He had never before been on a bus. He had not even traveled on a paved highway. Yet somehow he found me in one of the country's major cities. Upon his arrival, he matter-of-factly announced, I have heard about what you are doing. You need to hear my story also. This man had been born into a people group with a population of 24 million. In his people group, there were only three known followers of Jesus and no church. The only religion that he had ever practiced or known while growing up had been a sort of folk Islam. Pramana knew the Quran by rote. He couldn't actually speak Arabic. So as an oral communicator from an oral culture, he simply memorized the words of the book as if they were part of some sort of magic formula. He knew the story of Muhammad, of course, but he had never heard of anybody called Jesus. He had never met a believer, and he had no idea what a Bible was. Five years ago, he told me, my life was in ruins. My wife and I were always fighting. I was ready to divorce the woman. My children were disrespectful. My animals were not growing or multiplying. My crops were dying in the fields. So I went to the imam of a nearest mosque for help. Pramana continued. The imam, who also functioned as a local spiritualist, told him, okay, son, here's what you need to do. Go and buy a white chicken. Bring it to me and I will sacrifice it on your behalf. Then go back to your village to meditate and fast for three days and three nights. On the third day, you will receive the answer to all your problems that you're having with your wife, your children, your animals, and your crops. Pramana did exactly as he was told. He went back to his village. He meditated, he fasted, and he waited. Then, as he explained it, I'll never forget on that third night, a voice without a body came to me. After midnight, the voice said, find Jesus, find the gospel. 
This Muslim man had no clue what that even meant. He didn't know if Jesus might be a fruit or a rock or a tree. Pramana told me that the voice without a body also said, get out of bed, go over the mountain, walk down the coast to blank. He leaves it out. A city where, where he had never been. When you get to that city at daybreak, you'll see two men. When you see those men, ask them where blank street is. They will show you the way. Walk up and down that street and look for this number. When you find the number, knock on the door. When the door opens, tell the person why you've come. Pramana did not know that it was an option to be disobedient to the Holy Spirit. Poor guy. He didn't know it was an option to be disobedient to the Holy Spirit. He has simply assumed that he was required to obey what he had been instructed to do. So he went. He didn't even tell his wife that he was leaving, let alone where he was going. It turns out he would be gone for two full weeks. During that time, his family had no idea where he was. Pramana simply got out of the bed, hiked over the mountain, trekked down the coast, and arrived in the specified city the next morning at daylight. He saw two men who told him where to find the street he wanted. He walked up and down that street till he found a building with the right number on it. He knocked on the door. A moment later, an older gentleman opened the door and asked, How can I help you? The younger man declared, I have come to find Jesus. I have come to find the gospel. In a flash, the old man's hand shot out from the darkened doorway. He grabbed Pramana by the shirt, dragged him into the apartment, and slammed the door behind him. The old man released his grip and exclaimed, You Muslims must think I'm a fool to fall for a trap as transparent as this. The very startled and confused traveler replied, I don't know if you're a fool or not, sir, I just met you, but here is why I've come. Then Pramana told the older man the story of how he'd come to be there that day. The Holy Spirit of the living God had led that young Muslim man through his dream and vision and his obedience to the home of the, one of the three believers of his 24 million people group. Stunned, the older man explained the gospel to this young Muslim man and led him to Christ. For the next two weeks, the old man discipled this new convert in the faith. That had been five years ago. Now Pramana had made another journey. This journey was to find me and tell me his remarkable story. He had traveled 29 hours to share how his life had changed since he had found Jesus. There have been blessings and trials and tribulations during the last five years, but his life had clearly been changed in startling ways. He says, I rented a room for him in the large hotel where I was staying. We spent the next three days conducting one of the most memorable interviews he'd ever had. We tried to encourage him, and he certainly encouraged us, he says. We were deeply touched by his genuine and growing faith. We marveled that his faith had grown in this hostile world where there had been almost no opportunity for fellowship with the other followers of Jesus. Church, the, the Spirit is searching the world, <laughs> worldwide, to bring worshipers to Jesus, who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. Worshipers who will worship alongside us, becoming brothers and sisters in the family. It's happening. And so if you're a picky eater, let's open up our concept of family to include them, wherever they come from. But certainly where we live and work and learn and play, because that's where God has you planted. And that's where they are looking for him. Now, Pramana didn't know it was a, an option to be disobedient to the Spirit. But what I want to encourage you to do is just take, take a moment now at the end and just say, what is the Spirit calling you to do in obedience right now? Take a moment, make a plan, and we'll help you because we're your family.